It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then you can listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show Caitlin May. She's an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Brock University. And we are here to talk to Caitlin today about an article she wrote in The Conversation uh, having to do with how to teach saving and spending to kids. Oh, yeah, that's a great topic. So, Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So why did you think it was important to write this article on how to teach kids saving and spending? So my um, graduate student and I, Tessa Mazachowski, have been uh, looking at young children's future thinking. So generally how children plan, how they save for the future, how they delay gratification. Hmm. And in our recent research, we found that young children do have some basic saving capacity. And this actually increases over the preschool years. So a a three-year-old wouldn't be very good at saving, but Hmm. by the time they're five or six, they're much better. And we wanted to write this article to let uh, parents and just the general public know that there are actually some really effective ways to help very young children save. And uh, this is a a developing ability. So I think it's important for parents and teachers and anyone who interacts with children to have a basic understanding that children, very young children, three or four, are ready to learn about basic sort of saving and spending concepts. Mm. And thank you for pointing uh, about Tessa, because she did co-author the uh, the article with you. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, you know, you mentioned a couple of other things there and not directly related. Well, it is directly related. Parents and teachers and uh, I guess caregivers or anywhere, anyone else that has that influence over children, because children, by let's face it, they learn by example. They watch what what their parents do, they watch what their caregivers do, their their grandparents, et cetera, et cetera. So they're influenced by that as well. That's a, another big part of, of how kids learn, right? And how they would uh, uh, look at what their parents and caregivers are doing around spending and saving. Ab- absolutely. That's a great point, right? Kids don't just sort of grow up in a bubble. They're watching <laughs> what their parents do. They're watching you at the store and um, when when you're spending money. So this is something that Uh, We're just starting to look at um, prior to the pandemic, we were just starting to collect some data asking parents about their own saving behavior Mm. uh, in a study where we were looking at a number of saving behaviors in children and then asking parents things like, you know, are you saving for retirement? Uh, Do you talk to your children about saving? Do you give your children allowance just to get some sense of the types of behaviors that in the, in the home that might actually influence children's savings. Um, And unfortunately, due to the pandemic, that study has been put on pause. And we're about halfway halfway through that um, data collection. So we still need about 50 more kids. But um, hopefully, once we get into the lab, we can look at some of those questions. I think you're right. Um, Children's saving behavior is likely to be heavily influenced by what they're seeing their parents do and other caregivers around them do. Well, that's something we can follow up with uh, with you later on once you have had a chance to gather that information. But going back to this article, um, what did you find? Because you did do some experiments with kids. Um, and what are some of the things you started to find out? 
Yes. So um, Tessa and I noticed that there was a um, sort of a lack of research on this topic. And the one uh, main task that had been used um, was called uh, uh, the marble saving game. And this is a task where uh, you have children, uh, you give children a number of marbles, a limited number of marbles, and they either have a chance to play with a small, boring marble game, or they can save their marbles for a big, exciting game. And uh, what the research has found is that young children, so three-year-olds, are much more likely to spend more of their marbles on that little game and not save for, for the bigger game. But we wanted to create another measure. So Tessa and I adapted um, a savings uh, board game that had been used well, with much older kids, so kids, I think, 6 to 12 so we made this sort of child-friendly, uh, fun board game type game where children had five tokens, and in order to uh, sit, in order to get sort of a big prize at the end of the game, they had to save at least three. But during this board game, they had opportunities to purchase with their tokens smaller, less exciting prizes. So if they saved all their tokens to the end, they might have a chance to um, get a, like a stuffed animal, a small stuffed animal, whereas they had chances to maybe buy a pencil or a sticker or bubbles during the game. Um, and what we found is that even our youngest children, so even the three-year-olds, were able to save at least one token. So showing mm -hmm. that at least young children, they're not really saving very effectively, but they at least show some ability to save. But by the time children were five or six or seven, they were much more likely to save enough tokens for that big prize at the end. So that, that um, data show that um, really children's um, saving ability is undergoing quite a bit of development between even three and five. So by the time you uh, are in, children are in school, they're much better at being able to understand saving for the future, right? And saving to get something better in the future. Mm. Now, that's that's an interesting concept too, isn't it? And and something that young kids have might have a harder time understanding is that future concept? Absolutely. So that's a sort of the, a broader topic that we look at in my lab is how children plan and think about the future. Um, and in that same study, we not only looked at saving, but we looked at a number of, of other what we call future-oriented abilities. Uh, and we know that most of these abilities do develop in the preschool years. So it's not just saving that it, that develops, it's planning ahead. It's the ability to remember to do something in the future, uh, being able to sort of delay or postpone gratification. All those abilities are undergoing a lot of development during the preschool years. Mm. You know, as you were talking there, you, you're saying, I think you said the kids had five marbles? Uh, yes, in the marble game. Yeah, so five marbles. And I'm <laughs> thinking mathematically here, right? So I'm thinking five marbles, and they were able to save one. I'm going, that's not too bad. If you turn that into into money... <laughs> And no, were, it's, you know, it's not, absolutely like it. And it's, it's true. I and mean, that's, that's pretty promising that kids were, at, you yeah. know, able to resist the temptation just yeah. to spend all their marbles, right? right. <laughs> yeah, right like like one fifth of their earnings. That's not bad, I guess, really. Yeah, that's actually right. I think on track with what what's sort of recommended, right, is 20% of your income goes into savings. So. <laughs> you know, um, I remember this this concept I, I tried to uh, impart to my kids uh, because I, I really think that, again, going back to our education and why why we don't get that basic understanding of the everyday kind of principles, you know, that we use around math, that we use around uh, money and understanding money and how that should work in our lives. Um, so I, I tried to 
uh, get the idea because it was expressed to me at one point about the golden goose. So, you know, if, if you have this golden goose that lays eggs, right, um, you, you, you take a percentage of that and you, you put it into a jar or you put it into the bank or whatever. And you can you don't spend that money. You, you can only sit, spend what the golden eggs lay in terms of interest. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. there's a little mm-hmm. bit of money you can spend from that as it grows. And I was right. trying to to get that that idea of just being making sure you put stuff away and don't and don't spend it kind of thing. Right. That's that's really interesting because there's um there's research that actually shows that as, you know, even even though preschoolers can save, they they don't have a good sense of um kind of why you would save or how you would mm. save, but there is some research showing that older children, so again, children in sort of 7 to 12 range understand the, the concept of a of a bank in that when you put the money in the bank, um, you're not able to spend it, right? So they mm. have this understanding that, oh, there, there's a purpose of a bank. Um, and I also um, just want to touch on something you said earlier, which it was another reason that we, we decided to write um, the conversation article now, is that the um, government of Ontario had just announced uh, changes to the math curriculum right. to include some of this financial um, some of these financial concepts. So budgeting that they're actually going to introduce in schools. And Tessa and I thought, well, you know, it's high time, right. Mm. That children get some of this practical stuff because, you know, at home, who knows what they're getting. It's good. It's really going to depend on, on how parents spend and how how they save. And uh, so that was another sort of um, impetus to write this article at this time. Yeah. Now you did, you did look at some interesting uh, findings uh, from say 2019 in the survey of the financial consumer agency and the ECOS uh, research associates. And, and you found that I was at one third of Canadians uh, say they would have trouble finding $2,000 in an emergency. Absolutely. And it, it's, it's interesting. Every time we write one of these articles or think about this, I, Tessa always goes and finds sort of these facts. <laughs> and sometimes it's things like, oh, well, 40% of Canadians over the age of something like 40 um, don't have anything saved for retirement, right? Mm-hmm. So there are always these shocking statistics around, you know, people aren't saving for retirement. They, they don't have a lot. And I get it's tough economic times. And it's, it's, really difficult when cost of living keeps rising and, and salaries aren't sort of following that. Um, but it is pretty shocking that, you know, a lot of people are living on kind of this edge of, um, yeah. you know, could they cover even mm. 2000 a $2,000 expense? Yeah. Uh, um, going back to kids and how they think, you know, and in trying to get this idea of the immediate versus the future kind of idea, how how would you say kids uh immediately start to grasp the concept how how many times i guess what i'm saying is how many times might it need to be repeated to them to get that you know through to their understanding right so so part of it is just sort of this this natural sort of development that occurs right, right. like a 3 year old no matter how much you you know, talk, talk to them about the future. Of course, it's probably helpful, but a lot of it's just going to depend kind of on the natural course of development that a five-year-old is going to be just more understanding about the future than a three-year-old or yeah. even a, a two-year-old who sure. would probably completely lack concepts about the future. 
Um, but I think it's, you know, it's still, it's still important to talk with them about saving and, and some of the past um, literature. So uh, Christina Atance and Deep Sea Camoir, who are actually both um, in Ottawa, Christina is at the University of Ottawa and Deep Sea is at Carleton University. Um, they've both studied this in their lab and uh, Christina Atance and her colleagues have found that even just telling children that savings is, saving is an option increases um, children's savings of those marbles. So that, that shows that with a three-year-old, it's even just mentioning that, oh, well, you could spend your money or you could save it right. uh, increases performance. Uh, and Deep Sea Camoir and her colleagues have shown that children, if you ask them to kind of make a budget, so say, okay, put how many marbles you're going to spend now in this bowl and put these ones for later. That's again, a really effective way to promote saving. So I think there are simple kind of basic tools that parents and caregivers can use that is actually really effective in young children. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Caitlin May. She is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Brock University. And we're speaking with her uh, about an article she co-authored in the conversation with Tessa Mazikowski. And it is How to Teach Saving and Spending to Kids as Young as Three Years Old. Is there a difference, Caitlin, in terms of how kids perceive the idea of working with marbles and or the concept of money? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And that's one of the reasons why Tessa and I tried to create this board game. Uh, But you're right, in both cases, you know, marbles are sort of thought of as a resource, Um, the tokens that we have them play with in our um, board game, board game are also just tokens, right? So they're not exactly representative of money. Mm -hmm. So there is that sort of extra step children have to say. So we haven't actually looked at, um, there is some literature on children's understanding of numeracy. And of course that develops over these uh, preschool years as well. Um, But the idea is in the lab, if we can get them, you know, looking at, um, you know, resources, tokens, um, there's probably an analogy there uh, to money. Yeah, because money is is one of those weird things, right? That that I would think it it would be difficult for kids to understand. It's something we use, but and it and it it, it is kind of like marbles. But w- what it does and how it can be utilized, it can be saved, it can be invested, it can be doing all of these things, divided, multiplied, et cetera, et cetera, and it can be quickly taken away. <laughs> Right? Yes. So yeah. there's a lot of things around the concept of, of funds and money uh, for kids to grapple with and, and, and understand. Yeah, and it's interesting that, you know, money inherently is sort of a representation of something else, right? Yeah, there, yeah. There's no inherent value in a, in a, a piece of paper, but mm. what it represents does mm-hmm. have value. So in that way, I think the marbles or the tokens uh, that we've um, used in the lab are also representations of something else, right? It's something mm. you trade in to mm. get a big prize or trade in to get a small prize. But I, but I think you're right. There's um, yeah, I think there's there needs to be more research done about children's understanding of money specifically compared to these other types of tasks that use tokens or marbles in the lab. Uh, you, 
you guys uh, referenced or you work with something that I thought was really interesting, and that is about the avatar. I think there was uh, children that worked with an avatar of uh, their, their older selves uh, when they were 70 years old as opposed to working with a, a younger uh, version of themselves. And that yes. was really interesting in how it affected what kids did. So that, that was actually with adults. I think it would be really oh, interesting okay. to do with kids. Yeah. Um, but that, yeah, that was young adults. And okay. basically they were asked, um, there's been a, a number of studies and the whole, the whole idea behind this is if you are um, able to sort of feel closer to your future self, whether yes. that's when you're 70, you're more likely to, to save, right? And sort of consider that future self. So yeah, young adults were shown either sort of aged pictures of themselves or not. And they showed that the young adults that saw these pictures of themselves when they were 70 years old put aside a lot more money for retirement than those that didn't see that. Was it just the image of them or was there other information that went along with that to back up what the kids were trying to do? I believe in that study, it was just their their own image and this idea of, of feeling like, wow, this is me, right? It's still right. me. It's right. it's sort of projecting yourself into um, the, into the future, but still feeling that connection over time. So yeah, it was just the image and that alone was enough to get people to sort of say they would set aside more money. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I think it would be really interesting to do with kids. I don't know yeah. what, like, it would it would be more difficult, but even if... We could say, okay, this is you in two years from now, right? Mm. Or even five years from now. I mm. wonder if that would help also um, maybe motivate them to save. Right. Uh, through this process, what kind of questions did, did, did kids have for you? That's, that's a good question. So Tessa did most of this um, in, in lab testing. So I don't know if I can answer that mm. fully. But I know I, I have a four and a half year old at home. Mm. And I know whenever I ask her questions about sort of spending or saving, um, her concepts seem really shaky. And, and, you know, she has a piggy bank and we sort of give her money to put in the piggy bank. And she has the basic understanding mm. um, of money. But, for example, whenever you ask her about like, well, do you know about credit cards? She'll say no. Right. <laughs> but um, I think it's, it's interesting, and at least in my household during the pandemic, she hasn't been out doing, she would used to sort of accompany us to shop on shopping trips. And that hasn't been the case during the pandemic. So for the last nine months, she really hasn't seen how we're spending or saving um, like she did prior to that time. Mm. You know, that's really interesting too. Uh, the idea of a credit card, when when a kid, I guess, if, if, if they go to, to the store with you and they see you handing over cash for exchange for an item, that's one thing. But mm-hmm. to see a card that is just used, you know, tapped or whatever, and then you get the item, I wonder what kind of thought that leaves with the child. Oh, it's just this piece of plastic I need. It, it, they, right. Obviously, they don't see and understand the concept. That's, a, that's an even bigger concept, isn't it, about yeah. credit and, yeah. and how that works. Yeah. And I think um, like if you if you look at sort of advice um, that it's generally that, you know, don't use credit cards in front of children. Right. Because there is this kind of misunderstanding of it's sort of this magical source. Mm. Uh, Whereas you're right. When there is a cash transaction, children might understand, oh, you're giving something in a certain amount or you're giving a lot of the bills or whatever over to get something. Whereas the credit card is is it's sort of this other level. And I think as, as children get older, 
obviously they would understand that a little bit more. Uh, but I think it, it can be something that's um, a bit problematic, right? That children may have this idea that it's sort of this endless source of, of money and you just hand over this piece of plastic and you get mm-hmm. things for mm-hmm. it. What are some of the things, if, if you can think of any, that, that you were surprised to, to learn about through this process working with kids? Well, I think one thing is often we think of, of three-year-olds as sort of lacking these types of future-oriented abilities. So that's one thing that surprised me mm. was that even these really young kids, right, can do this. Mm. And I, I think the research that shows that if you mention saving, that improves children's savings, it shows that they do have some competence. They don't necessarily do it on their own, right. but with a little bit of prompting, I think it, it goes a long way. Um, and this is often what we see more broadly in, in children's cognitive development is they do have some of those abilities, but they really need some uh, sort of adult scaffolding, right, to Mm. really bring it out. Um, So that's one thing that surprised me. Um, And another thing that surprised me, and again, this is something Tessa and I are trying to tackle, is that most of the the work on savings has has sort of narrowly looked at at resources. So for example, Tessa and I, in this new study that we had started, and that we hope to finish someday, uh, we looked at how children save time, Mm. and also how they save space, because Mm. we thought, okay, it's not just about saving money. There are other things you can save, right? And you can think about in the, in the natural world, thinking about saving uh, water or, or natural resources kind of for future generations. So yes. I think um, one thing that's really piqued my interest is this idea of saving more broadly, not just money, although of course that has great practical significance, but how we save space, how we save energy, how we save time. Um, so I'm hoping that future, our, our future work will really be able to dive into that and get a sense of if you're, if you're good at saving one type of thing, does that mean you're good at saving all types of things? Yeah, that would be really interesting because you're quite right. Uh, time, space uh, are, are, are things that, that we can also save. Although time is the one thing that everybody here on the planet has the same amount of, right, while right. we're here. Um, what about value? And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the picture on your, in your article of the child, you know, putting a coin into the piggy bank. And do, how do kids look at, say, the difference between a, a 25-cent coin and a loony? And do they understand that idea? Or is it just yes. a coin? Right. So, so that really gets into children's understanding of, of kind of numeracy and number, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think with, with really young kids, like a three-year-old, unless they've been, you know, really taught about different um, values, they have a really hard time with that, sure. right? And, and like in Canada, the, the dime being worth more, but it's smaller than the nickel, right? Like mm-hmm. young kids often would struggle with that relationship because they're like, well, one's bigger, so it should yeah. be worth more. So I, I think right now it's not until around grade one that children are really kind of taught about um, values of of sort of coins and and currency. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, parents may be doing it earlier, but I think that is, that is something that probably is, is really difficult for young children is learning about the representation of, of the numeric value or the value of a coin, right. Or a dollar bill. It's, it's challenging because it's not intuitive. There's not some, some feature about it, like the bigger ones aren't always worth more. Yeah. And so what can parents, caregivers, uh, you know, what can they do to help kids grasp these concepts and, and help them look at saving? Yeah, so I think what one um, thing 
uh, people might might do is start by giving children just talking with them basically about money about saving so mm-hmm. suggesting that you know if they're in a situation where their child wants to spend their allowance or has um, saved up just talking about well you can have this now but that means that you know tomorrow or a year from now you won't be able to to do this and um, encouraging children um, maybe giving them an allowance encouraging them to think about you know are they wanting to save it are they going to save it up and spend it on something or do they want to spend it uh, immediately so i think giving children a small allowance, even if it's only, you know, a, a, a quarter or a dollar mm. allows children to start understanding sort of the, the value of money, right? And that if you want something that's more expensive, you're going to have to save more of those dollars to get it. Mm-hmm. And, and so are you in, encouraged by the changes in the, uh, in the new elementary math curriculum? Absolutely. I, I really think it's a, a really smart move. I know as, as a child, um, I was never taught anything <laughs> about budgeting. And right. it's something that as an adult, like you, you kind of have to learn on your own mm-hmm. or you, well, probably is the truth is you learn from your parents, right? You yep. learn your parents' habits. Sure. Um, so yeah, I'm very encouraged that this is um, this sort of more practical math is being uh, embedded into the curriculum. I think it's a great move. Mm. Anything else you can think of what not to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think one thing, and this is so easy in the in the when people are purchasing things online, is just uh, be, being conscious of how you're using credit cards around mm. your children and making sure you have those conversations, especially with older children who are are kind of developmentally ready mm. that you know this isn't just a endless source of money yeah. um and maybe the importance of you know not overspending right, right. so not getting into that uh, credit card debt by spending money you don't have um yeah. And, and in some cases, that might mean for parents going back to debit cards, right, rather than credit mm. cards, where you can't overspend more mm. than, than what you have. Right. Um, and just, I think, um, the importance of, of talking to kids about um, money and, and saving early on, I think, is a good idea. But as they get older, obviously, it becomes more complex, um, so, you know, giving a teenager a credit card, for example, may not be the best way to teach them right. how to manage money responsibly. Right. One of the things that you've underlined in your article is financial literacy learning that some children will get in school. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting because we were just talking about the fact that, you know, we, we didn't get that. We didn't get exposed to that. So are we talking about private schools in that case or what are we talking about? So I, I think there we were trying, so because the conversation sort of um, the articles um, sort of get spread around the globe, uh, we wanted, we didn't want to make it specific to Ontario. So luckily right. children in Ontario are going to get this, but yeah. that doesn't apply obviously to, you know, every country in the right. world or, or necessarily every right. province in Canada. Yes. Okay. Uh, anything else you can think of before we uh, finish up our conversation, Caitlin, because um, it's been really interesting talking to you about this. Yeah, what I mean, what, one thing I always like to remind parents and uh, teachers is that this is something, you know, children's ability to think about the future is still developing during the preschool years. So I know it's often easy to get frustrated with young children. Mm. And as I said, I'm a parent of a preschooler myself. Yeah. And it's like, how, how, you know, if you tell your child to clean up something or, or do this, and, and they often forget and don't do it. And it's, I think it's just an important reminder 
to, to everyone that these children are still developing these skills. So try and exercise patience. So if you're, if you're speaking to your child about saving or spending and they're not getting it right away, you know, don't get frustrated. It may not, it just be a little bit too early. So yeah. try again in a month or two, right. right? It's just important to keep in mind that their, their brains are developing, uh, their cognition is developing during this period. Uh, but parents do play a really important role in uh, fostering some of these abilities. Right. Um, so I always like to encourage parents uh, to engage with their children and talk about the future and talk about saving and planning ahead. And these types of things can be really helpful. Great. Caitlin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and sharing uh, what you found from your article in the conversation on how to teach uh, saving and spending to kids as young as three years old. It's been really fascinating. And we look forward to following up with you to, uh, you know, to these other things that you're looking into in the future as well. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And I'd love to follow up once we're able to collect data post pandemic. (laughs) Right. Okay. All right. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. That's Caitlin May. She is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Brock University. We were talking to her about her article in the conversation, How to Teach Saving and Spending to Kids as Young as Three Years Old. That was a co-authored article uh, along with Tessa Mazikowski. So thanks once again to Caitlin joining us on the show. And thank you for listening to the show each and every day right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. I am your host, David Moses, and we will see you back here very shortly. Don't go away. Be right back with more. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, and then... uh, Type in E-L-M-N-T-F-M and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Brent McKnight. He is an associate professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. And we are here to talk to him about an article he wrote in the conversation, How Retailers Are Dealing with Changing Consumer Habits During COVID-19s. Brent, welcome to the show. Oh, David, thank you so much. Oh, it's our pleasure to have you here. Of course, uh, there's been a lot of changes in this uh, last 12 months. Uh, well, I guess 10, 10 months or so of this year uh, since COVID-19 uh, came to confront us around the globe. And certainly we've been through now a couple of of the uh, COVID-19 uh, situations. We had our first wave. We're into our second wave. There's more talk now about possible shutdowns and lockdowns. Uh, we have this tiered sort of a level thing that's going on that people are, are trying to cope with as well. Uh, what is your sense of, of how uh, things changed from, say, the, when, when we first got hit with COVID? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been quite a ride, hasn't it? Uh, mm. It's kind of a losing track of time. So many people I talked to <laughs> oh, yeah. are like, uh, uh, there was pre-COVID time, now there's COVID time. <laughs> I certainly think most people feel that way. Yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, at, at the start, there was a lot of people that were completely blindsided by this. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, for them, um, you know, it was day to day, you know, uh, right, right off the bat. And I think we started to kind of kind of flow into more of a realization that this is a longer term uh, problem. And, and I think we're approaching it in a longer term way. Uh, so that's one big shift from the, the first initial onslaught in March and uh, April and May uh, to where we are uh, today, where there's a bit of a, 
you know, commitment to that long haul that's necessary. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Now, I, I guess, as you say, it was unprecedented. Nobody had had dealt with this for over 100 years, right, yeah. uh, around the globe. So, uh, yes, but we, we, I, we had been told it was going to come. It was going to happen at some point. Uh, yeah. We just weren't sure when, and here it is. And, of course, that meant that, like you said, a lot, everyone was dealing with whether it was whether you were a retailer or not, if you were operating a business and if you're personal, everybody was affected in different ways around this. And we all know that some of the things that changed was going online uh, with business meetings, um, with uh, turning uh, business online as well. Uh, we've heard a lot about the the large business outlets that are, you know, that where where we have to get our essentials from, they're being allowed to stay open. But we certainly know that a lot of the smaller retails have been affected in ways to, to close. They they haven't had, I guess, maybe as many options as the larger retailers and those essential services that we need to have uh, stay open for us. Uh, what did you What did you hear, and what were you What did you find from talking to them? Yeah, I mean, th- this is definitely being a big challenge for smaller retailers. Um, you know, when we have these multi-category retailers like Walmart and, um, you know, superstores that we've got in Costco that sell groceries, which are necessary, but also sell, you know, everything else that you need, mm-hmm. right? Um, which was certainly, you know, I think, um, you know, whether we can fault the government, I, th- I think we can, but we can also understand the situation that they're in. They're trying to, uh, you know, find a, a po- policy path to this that's fairly un. Um, uh, unprecedented, at least in our recent time. Uh, but but these uh, retailers definitely struggled, um, you know, and, and I think, you know, I think one thing you, you, we found is that some of the retailers, depending on their sector, struggled more than others. So if you're in gardening, if you were in cookware, baking, you know, you did not so bad. Uh, if you're in clothing, uh, unless you're like uh, sweatpants and, and uh, activewear, right. um, you maybe struggled uh, more than others. So there's a big de- difference in, in terms of the sector that you're in mm-hmm. and what kinds of products and services you're offering. But I think, too, um, many Main Street retailers, and those are the type of retailers I talked to, um, found that, um, you know, they'd engaged more deeply and strengthened their engagement with their customers, despite the plexiglass and the masks. Uh, and that's because, you know, some of the retailers uh, took it upon themselves to personally deliver products to their customers, mm. or they had private consultations in store, which can deepen a connection, or they'd have, you know, email exchanges and more Instagram connections, and uh, they'd tour the products using a live video conferencing. Um, and, and so lots of different ways. And I think um, beyond that, you know, stores that didn't used to engage in creative ways of selling their products have been forced to do that. Uh, and, and I think um, I think that's that's positive. You know, for example, for example, you've got a used bookstore creating a subscription box. You know, mm. Pick your genre and I'll send you, you know, two books a month or six books a month or mm. whatnot. So so I think, um, you know, yes, th- this is a challenging time. And many retailers are uh, many retailers are struggling, uh, as, as many of us are. Uh, but I think there are opportunities for retailers to seek greater connection with customers. Uh, and that might be a productive path for them. Yeah, uh, that seeking greater connection uh maybe you could elaborate on that i'm not quite sure you know because of the physical distancing because of those things uh and and we're just told to stay home uh you know only go out for essentials um how how does that work then 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, certainly there is an online element to this, mm-hmm. um, you know, where well, you there's websites now and, and this this uh, crisis accelerated online uh, retail sure. uh, in the small Main Street retailers, you know, by two or three years, like in the span of two months, it was right. uh, an insane and you saw, you know, companies like Shopify just doing incredibly well. Um, you know, because they support uh, putting small uh, retailers online, um, you know, but I think that the challenge for, for these retailers is not to try to imitate um, Amazon, right? Oh, um, yeah. Not to try to tackle that kind of uh, behemoth, but rather uh, to find ways to use an online presence, either, you know, website, Instagram, Facebook, um, you know, to support their physical, local, you know, kind of delivery of products and services. Uh, so, so yeah, like sending emails to your to people that uh, that are in retailers, right? Um, engaging on Instagram, um, you know, there's just there's ways you can connect with them, even though um, you can't necessarily go into the store in some situations. You know, a, a number of things come to mind as we were discussing this, and as I was reading the, the article, I was wondering about. Um, there's definitely an impact on on everybody. Um, and, and you know, one of the things you point out was uh, a value, I think. You're trying to find value with, with their – and connection with their consumers. Mm-hmm. And um, so shopping local and the difference between, like you said, either going to an Amazon where, yeah, you might get the great – a great price, whatever it is. But, but there is a difference in those consumers, isn't there? Someone that is just going after the price and someone that is going after that local connection and, and maybe trying to find, uh, you know, not just the best price. They're maybe looking for the best quality. They're looking for something different. Yeah. Yeah. I think there, there really are, you know, some customers that would just be Amazon shoppers. And Mm -hmm. and I don't think there's much point in a main street retailer trying to uh, not necessarily trying to uh, attract those customers, Mm -hmm. but the ones that are valuing service, valuing that human connection, um, valuing the expertise and knowledge that comes with, you know, often these retailers have been in business for 20 years, you yeah. know, and, um, and, and, uh, and that, that, that's something that I think they've got to lean into, right? I think that's really, um, mm. really important. You know, as I think about this, and I was, I was, again, reading your article, and I was thinking about the word you used about habits, and, and those habits aren't necessarily um, things that we, that we would do because we, uh, we, we would normally do it. We do it because they're convenient. So convenient habits, such as uh, you're, you're traveling on the subway, you're traveling on a commuter train or a bus, you know, back and forth to work each day. There's specific areas where you would stop, grab a quick coffee or a breakfast, you know, bun or something on the way, right? Those are those those everyday habits. And, and those kind of, I, you know, I don't necessarily think of those kind of businesses, but they're heavily impacted by that. Yeah, and I think you know certainly those kind of um, kind of quick eat kind of places in 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 more uh, work environments mm. uh, like downtown Toronto, perhaps, mm. or, or certain sectors, certain places where there's more people that come in from other places to work. Um, you know, we have commuters coming in. You know, those would suffer. Um, but but habits are you know much broader than that. You know, so habits are about yeah yeah like patterns of commuting and working and recreation as well and what we choose sure. to do and all of 
of those habits drive our consumption. So, you know, it, you know, I don't know if you've changed your job, but um, you know, when you change your job, sometimes you're like, Oh, it's more convenient for me to go to this different grocery store, sure. for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in clothing, the, the title of my piece was dress pants optional uh, <laughs> because so many of us are on zoom right now. And yeah. um, you know, it's a waste up kind of world. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, so it's a, very different kind of habits around how you're working and, and um, or whatnot. And we know wearing clothes is a social environment. So if social activity, so if we're not in a social environment, you know, that changes how we buy clothes. So I think habit changes are, are way broader than just kind of the convenience elements as well. And, and, uh, and, and it speaks to, you know, how, how wholesale the change in how we behave is because of COVID. I was talking to a, a comic book own, store owner uh, and they had at least one person that just said, you know what, I'm no longer collecting comics. And mm. this person would be collecting comics for 20, 30 years. Mm. So big, big change. Mm. What drove that change? Uh, I, I don't know, but certainly this is a time for introspection and for thinking about what we do and why we do it. Uh, and um, you know, I think that that also has a big impact on habits. And maybe what's, what's really important to me kind of thing. I think that's exactly yeah. it. Now, of course, there's others that, hey, I can't go to Comic Con, <laughs> uh, and so I'm going to spend you know more money on more comic yeah. books, right? So the, the, it, it doesn't go all in one direction. Nope. But there's you know when we have this COVID um, uh, impact on us is really a disruption, a massive disruption of our habits, uh, and that creates both a risk for retailers that we're servicing those habits, but also you know on the flip side, a, an opportunity as well uh, to find ways to connect with customers about what those new habits are or to um, influence those new habits. Or just as you say, find out that uh, that a, a comic collector is going to put more into it because I'm not going to the the, the you know the the uh, conventions um, and I have this cash that I'm going to spend. Hey, now's an opportunity for me to spend more on this because this is important to me. Well, that's it, and, and that's why I think it's incumbent on both consumers and retailers to connect with each other and and. And basically for retailers to figure out what do they want? You know, what, what is, what's going on here? What's the opportunity here? Um, you know, what, um, how can I better engage my customers? And then for co- consumers, it's to be a bit more vocal about what they would want to see. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think it, it goes both ways. Uh, well, as you say, certainly a lot, a lot has changed. I, I like the uh, the term you used about a waste up world. Kind of kind of ties in with the mask up world as well, right? Um, it's going to be trending on Twitter pretty soon. I think. That's, yeah. right, that's right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours. Hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a pleasure to have on our show Brent McKnight. He is an associate professor at DeGroat School of Business at McMaster University. And we're talking to him about an article in the conversation that he, he wrote, and it is entitled uh, How Retailers Are Dealing with the Changing Consumer Habits During COVID 19. Uh, uh, Brent, you know, a couple of things that I was thinking about about opportunities during this time. I remember, you know, one of the things that was really big prior to COVID-19 was the focus in youth were focusing on the climate, right? All that stuff that was going on uh, around the globe and about the impact that we uh, as people were putting the stress on this planet and the climate change and the climate crisis we find ourselves in. And when this happened and it shut down, you know, I remember seeing comments about how 
this is a this is an opportunity for the planet to breathe a little bit because now you know the air was clearing up the water we heard stories about the rivers clearing up and people seeing the bottom of uh, in Venice I think for the first time in who knows how long uh, they could see the, actually the bottom of the the, the rivers and, and and things through the city so there was there was that plus but on another side of that I was thinking you know if if possible somehow some way could businesses take advantage of that themselves to retool to uh, to to restructure you know to maybe make some changes that if they weren't going to be able to get customers coming in to maybe uh, do that that fix up they wanted to do uh you know um you know that side of things yeah I, there's there's definitely that happened actually a lot of retailers i talked to um, took those first two weeks. Um, mm. you know, some of them said, "Oh my God, I need a break. I'm taking right. that week." Sure, but but quite a few of them, you know, uh, actually went in and, and did those things around their store uh, that they uh, they'd be meaning to do: mm-hmm. right? be merchandising, painting stuff that's hard to do when you keep the store open. Yeah. So so I think there's that kind of like kind of base level of stuff that's happening. Yep. I know it accelerated for a lot of people their online presence and, and made them think about that. Uh, I know a lot of them are using Instagram more and, and finding ways to connect with customers that way. Mm-hmm. And, and I, as I say, some like uh, there's a one bookstore that has this um, subscription service. And I'm quite sure that came as a result of, you know, a need to rethink differently, but the power of, you know, those, those new ways of connecting with customers are something that shouldn't go away when COVID ends. Right. It, it should be something that's, that's in their toolbox. And, and I think, um, I think the retailers that are, are smart about it, um, you know, and, and there's sector specific problems uh, for sure. Like if you're a wedding dress uh, mm. retailer, um, mm. you know, you've got to deal with the mass uncertainty associated with when you can actually gather together again, let alone whether you're going to walk into a store um, mm. comfortably. Mm. But, but in general, you know, if, if, you, if you find ways to reconnect with customers, uh, then, then I think those ways of reconnecting uh, and that innovation uh, can, can really be helpful for the future. Of their organize their store, Brent. I'm not sure if if you touched on this with some of the people you spoke to because you're talking about retailers, but this would impact them as well. I'm just thinking, you know, I've, I've heard about uh, other business organizations uh, talking about restructure and how how, th- how COVID has affected things, and that is uh, just how is this and some of these things you refer to and, and expect the, them not to change after COVID. Uh, people are, are seeing different ways of being able to do business. So I guess the, the grocery delivery service might be one of those things, which uh, tried to tried to get going a number of years ago. Uh, now it's like big business, I think. So um, what about, though, the footprint of retail space or, or office space? Um, yeah. Are you hearing a sense of how that might change now because people are working more from home Uh, business opportunities are there to maybe reduce the footprint not pay as much rent if they if they do that kind of thing yeah no there's there's definitely going to be a big shakeout and it's hard to know what that what that's going to look like um you know obviously um there was there's certain organizations that like you to work from home and those that don't historically Mm -hmm. And I think that the number of organizations that now don't want you to work from home uh, has shrunk dramatically uh, because mm-hmm. they've realized that this can work and it did work um, and that there's some there's some benefits. And many, many employees are going to say, look, I, I really appreciate the ability to be home even two days a week. Yeah. So, of course, to take advantage of that, um, you need to have a very particular type of uh, of uh, 
I mean, this isn't retail, this is more office, um, but you need to have a very different setup. You, you got to have a hoteling setup, you know, where people come into their office uh, and they, they pick a, a, you know, a, a chair for the day. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and they keep all their stuff in a locker or, or in their bag or whatnot. Right. Um, you know, obviously if you, if you have dedicated offices and dedicated spaces, you know, you can't really reduce your, your retail footprint. So, so uh, that'll take time. Um, you know, for those that are already in a hoteling situation, it would be a lot easier, like some of the big banks and, and many of the other organizations that do this already, uh, they, they can cut down uh, a lot faster, but others are going to have to really think their culture through uh, and figure out what works for them. Uh, but I think it's going to happen because there's been proven that that in a lot of cases uh, that this can be done. Not, not, not entirely because no, you, know, no, no. you have new people that come in, um, that personal and direct connection with others is really important for team building. But um, certainly a portion of the workday. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and as you say, we'll have to wait to see how this, as you call a shakeup, uh, affects things. I, I'm just trying to think of, I'm trying to look down the road ten years, twenty years, and just imagine how our our, for instance, downtown office spaces and and downtown yeah. city centers might look different because of the impact of this and and let's not let's not forget the uh the the uh real estate industry and how that's been affected we have more hearing more and more people that are because they're spending more time at home are now looking for more space they're moving out of uh, condos they're moving out of the city trying to find a little more space that they can uh say use a, a room for their office space in their home and maybe have a little more green space outside and around that they can enjoy themselves because they're spending more time there yeah, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a real estate agent, so I, I right. don't know uh, all of those trends. But yeah. my sense and my thinking on this is is I bet the people that have been moving out of, of Toronto, and, and that's largely, I think, where they're moving out of larger centers, um, you know, are are the ones that were already kind of one foot out the door. <laughs> you know, uh, I think I think there was an element of that because I mm. think to, to upend your, your life um, or they have connections to like, you know, Collingwood or Picton or some kind of location where they've been spending some of their time, you know, cause I think to up, upend your life in the middle of a pandemic mm. um, that, you know, is not going to last forever yep. is a big decision. Sure. Uh, so I, I suspect it was kind of like a nudge, um, right. you know, but I, I think definitely it's, it's going to have long uh, lasting implications back on the, um, the space. I do yes. know some retailers are talking about, you know, how do they deliver, online, you know, and, and, uh, uh, fulfill online orders. Yes. Um, you know, so during the shutdown, their whole stores were just converted into essentially like a, a warehouse, right. Yep. Where they were shipping things yep. out. Um, you know, some of them are thinking about ways in which they can create more space for them to do that kind of thing. Right. Um, as necessary. So that, that might be something we'll see as well. You know, I'm thinking, the first thing that comes to mind, I guess, is is thinking about how many of the uh, essential kind of things that took place. We have lineups, you know. We're not all just mm-hmm. a, all piling into places anymore. Maybe they're going to they're gonna change more to an appointment-style sty- uh, encounter. And so retail space can, like you say, they can change their backspace into a warehouse and have smaller pl- space out front for the retail side where they make an appointment somebody comes in and gets that personal service that you were talking about and and gets taken care of uh, much more on a, on a one-to-one basis uh, and then uh, you know uh, next next client comes in kind of thing um, yeah. barring places like restaurants of course where where you know we, we, we have those kind of setups I, I wanted to ask about one other thing and that is about the government because uh, you know the government did step up and provide uh, support for businesses as well financial support. Yep. 
Yeah, no, I think I think that was highly um, welcome, and I think most of the retailers I talked to, you know, took advantage of the loan uh, mm-hmm. in particular, right? The loan just to create some liquidity for themselves because uh, they didn't know what was going to happen. But of course, it had to be spent by a certain time, mm-hmm. um, and um, I think that was like end of this year. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for some people, it was just like I'm going to take it just in case, and others, you know, that was really critical for them. Um, you know, if you had a whole bunch of inventory, right, mm-hmm. and you're trying to manage relationships right. with your suppliers, uh, so that I think that was really good um the cerb you know helped and and then the uh, the wage subsidy helped yeah. a lot uh, yeah. for um, you know keeping people on mm-hmm. um so i think a lot of them took advantage of that and then the, the one that was had mixed reviews and i think you know it was all over the news was the idea of the landlords and the, the rent yeah. relief because it was kind of taken differently mm-hmm. um you know if you're a retailer and you own your sh- your building you're in a very different situation than right. if you were renting, right? Yes. That, that was a yes. huge difference. Sure. Um, and then many of the many, many of the landlords did take take part, uh, and others didn't. But that was one, um, you know, area of challenge I think for uh, you know for retailers is, yeah. is the whether the landlord took advantage of that or not. Brent, was there anything that surprised you, or that you you found uh, you, you you weren't expecting when you were looking through this and going through this and speaking to retailers? about what was going on during this time with them. Anything jump out at you that you just hadn't expected yeah. to hear or see? Yeah, I think two things probably that would come to mind. The first was just how many of them felt like they were closer to their customers than, hmm. you know, than before. Now, and that, that, again, could be the sector and, uh, uh, and specifically what they were selling. But the fact that something that's kind of creating a lot of separation and distance um, could actually, in some ways, create greater connection. And as I mentioned from hand delivering, um, mm. you know, products, um, mm. you know, whether your customer lives and, and uh, leads itself to a different conversation, the kinds of interactive emails that go back and forth between customers um, and just a willingness by customers that do come in to talk um, because they kind of are missing that. Um, and then also one other thing that was really interesting was uh, how traffic was down in a lot of stores, yes. but sales were, you know, maybe if not up, sustaining themselves so people were no longer browsing right mm-hmm. uh, and many of the com- many of the retailers that would be a, a destination for browsing um didn't miss that because uh, most of the people that, many of the people that had come into the stores actually weren't weren't buying uh so people um are much more purposeful about how they're shopping mm. um you know and and mm-hmm. they don't go in to a store without a, an intention to buy something. Yes. So I think that uh, was also really uh, really quite interesting. Yeah, well, that's interesting in itself, just thinking about how the consumer's mindset has changed about going to browse and or not browse. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm doing my thinking ahead of time now. Uh, yeah. Maybe looking and searching online for more, you know, to get some ideas prior to going in uh, yeah. so that you spend less time and you're, you're uh, following those, those protocols that we have in place at this time. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, well, retail, every retailer I talked to, one of the, I asked them, what, what is your top priority? And it was, uh, yeah, like uh, making sure we, we, we sell something mm. uh, was one. Uh, two was, was safety of employees, right? right? And three was safety of the customers, right? Sure. So there was that real focus on creating a safe environment. Um, but for people going into a, deciding to go out 
um, to do shopping, um, it's a lot harder than it used to be, right? Yeah. Bigger, uh, you know, in economics terms is a bigger transaction cost associated right. with, you know, leaving the door and um, remembering your mask. And, and there's right. an anxiety oh, yeah. associated with it as yeah. well. So, yeah. you know, when people are doing it, they want to actually come away with something um, that they've accomplished, I think. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that kind of, so, I mean, on that one side, that's a little sad because, um, you know, retail therapy and uh, this idea of just browsing and, yeah. and um, you know, as an experience yes. um, may take a while to come back. Yeah. But on the other side, you know, retailers, you know, especially when you want less people in your store, um, you know, having those people that are really serious, consumers that are really serious. Um, yeah. Certainly is helpful. Right. Brent, as you think of the future, uh, you know, eventually coming out of this or, or just in the next uh, eight months, what comes to mind for you? What do you think from your experience of speaking with the retailers, what we, what might we expect? Yeah, that's one of the questions I was asking them too. Is do you expect a new normal, uh, or do you expect you know a return to the the old normal? And pretty much everyone expected a new normal, but how dramatically different that new normal was um, varied quite a bit. Uh, you know, most people expect masks to still be commonplace for a while, mm. you know, and that and that that seems like just a practical thing having mm. a mask on. But there's a psychological element of that as well. Um, you know, the distance that we we uh, keep from each other. Uh, so. So that that's that's one one thing that I think they expect to be different as they mm. as we move into whatever the next phase of this uh, looks like. Um, yeah, and and I think and I hope that it's it's um, pushed retailers to engage with more service because I, I think for Main Street retailers, the independent retailers, you know, that's that's the path forward is to offer that high level of service and expertise um, and connect with customers now in a, in a multi-channel way, whereas. Mm. You know, retailers that are on Main Street typically would have their Main Street store, you know, and now uh, I think they're they're using other channels. And that's I, I think that's going to continue. And I don't expect that to go away, you know, when even when we're not wearing masks. I guess we might also have just a general a more awareness and heightened of that cleanliness side of things. Washing our hands. You mentioned masks. I'm thinking also sanitizers and those kind of things. We probably are going to see that remain in place, I'm guessing, after this is uh, all cleared up as well. I would think so for quite a long time, yeah. 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 Brent, pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and, and share these uh, ideas and thoughts around retailing. Absolutely, David. So uh, so great to be here. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. You bet. And that is uh, Brent McKnight. He is an associate professor of the Grout School of Business at McMaster University. And he was talking to us about his article in the conversation, and that is how retailers are dealing with these changing habits during this time. It's been a pleasure to have him on his show, and it's always a pleasure to have you listening to our show each and every day right here on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa and right across the country on the uh, Radio Player Canada app. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element. Element FM.